to the eve of our Lord's crucifixion. Begin reading at verse 57. Christ has just been betrayed by Judas, been given into the hands of wicked men. And then we read at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was standing outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too were one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So far the reading of God's word may bless that to us this morning. Let's turn also in our catechism to Lord's Day 37. Page 245 in the Forms and Prayers books, 245. On the third commandment, the Catechism asks us, But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness 
for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. Question 102. But may we also swear by saints or other created things? No. A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. There ends our confession. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue along the avenue of the Christian's love for God's holy law, we return again this morning to the third commandment. And if any of you are like me, perhaps some of you are probably wondering why there are two Lord's Days dedicated to the third commandment and why there is an entire Lord's Day devoted to the oath. After all, swearing oaths is not really a routine practice in our day-to-day living. And I trust that most of us are able to live by those simple words of Jesus, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if we consider this Lord's Day in light of the historical context in which it was written, then I think we'll come to see that the burden of this truth remains relevant for us today. As many of you will know, the Catechism was written in the context of the Protestant Reformation, and at the heart of that Reformation was the was the idea of sola scriptura, that we must return to the scriptures to, to regulate all things we need to know for our salvation. But it was in the context of this Reformation, this return to the scriptures, that the radical Reformation also was born. In reaction to Rome's marriage of church and state, the Anabaptists overreacted and began to teach that once a person belongs to Christ, he or she is cut loose, she is freed from the created natural world. And so they so separated the sacred from the secular, grace from nature, that they rejected the use of the oath, asserting that the Christian has no business bringing God's name into the public sphere, into the courts, or anywhere else for that matter. For them, the name of the game, the name of the Christian life was to, to flee from the world rather than to engage meaningfully with the world. And this idea was anathema to the Reformers. This idea of, of world flight was rejected by the Reformers. For Reformed forefathers were zealous to defend the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life. The, the sacred, the word of King Jesus was to be brought into the secular. The word of the king was to be brought into the world of the king. And so by her confession about the oath, writes Herman Veldkamp, the church of Jesus lifts high the name of God as a banner over every area of public life. Moreover, we learn from God's word, the oath was a gift of God's grace. According to the Dutch Reformed pastor, Ben Howarda, the oath is there to give security and a life where people live in a world of lies. The oath, you see, would not have been necessary had the lie never been introduced to the world, but the oath, writes Howard, at all times presupposes the dominion of sin. When God made humanity, he gave them the ability to 
communicate with each other. And the language that God gave them to use was, was the language of truth. So that his image bearers might always speak the truth in love. They might always build one another up in truth and in love. But sin ruined that, didn't it? When sin entered the world, the trust between the man and the woman was broken. And so trust was broken between all mankind for the generations to come. And so writes Howard, the beautiful word communication wherewith we relate to each other has become a heap of rubbish. We no longer know right off the bat if we can trust one another because after the fall, trust became something that needed to be gained. And because of sin, even when that trust is gained, that trust, even then, can still be broken, can't it? And so we confess here in Lord's Day 37 that God gave the oath in order that truth and trustworthiness might be maintained and promoted for, for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. For when one uses the oath, one is, is placed in the immediate presence of God himself. He invokes God's name so as to say, if I swear falsely, may God punish me ever so severely. The oath is therefore an appeal to God's final judgment. So that in a fickle world of lies, we can anchor our words in the name of God, the just judge of the universe. And so when we swear, we swear by the God of absolute faithfulness and absolute truth. This is the manner in which God said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, You shall fear the Lord your God. By his name you shall swear. For he is your praise and he is your God. And this is the grace of the oath that God has given it to us so that stability might be established once more. It was for this reason, the Sermon on the Mount, that the Lord rebuked the people of Israel. For they had made the oath a, a lightweight, trivial thing, thing that they could swear by other things and so give themselves an out from keeping their promises. To them, our Lord said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to abuse the oath, then don't use the oath at all. When we swear an oath, says our catechism, we are calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. With all this in mind, it's quite striking, isn't it, that a climactic moment in human history revolves around the oath. Here in Matthew chapter 26, the Lord Jesus is on trial. This is the eve of his crucifixion. The forces of Satan are in full force against the Christ of God. And the oath is at the very heart of it all. And so I invite you to consider with me this morning, dear saints, the Lord Jesus Christ on trial and under oath. The Lord Jesus on trial and under oath. For adoration you are see. The Lord Jesus on trial and under oath. For you and for me. And so we notice three things here this morning. First of all, the false witnesses in verses 57 to 61. Second of all, the faithful witness in verses 62 to 68. And then finally, the failed witness in verses 69 through 75. 
after our Lord is taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is led to the house of Caiaphas, where the Supreme Council of Sanhedrin has hastily gathered together. Three groups of men were represented in this council. First of all, there were the elders of the synagogue in Jerusalem. Secondly, there were the rabbis and the scribes, those who were considered to be students of the Scriptures. And then finally, there were the chief priests. They were present as well. And as we know, these three groups were divided. They broke down into two parties, the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other. And we know when we read the New Testament, these two groups disagreed on many things, ranging from the existence of angels to the resurrection of the dead. But on this night, they are all agreed. With regard to the Christ, they are all of the same mind. To crucify him. To put to death the Lord of glory. As we know, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God had appeared in the flesh. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected the grace of God, and they have conspired against that grace throughout the entirety of his ministry. And it's all come down to this, to this night. The forces of Satan have been at work ever since the promise in Genesis 3.15, always seeking to, to destroy the seed of the woman. And this is the terrible fruit of their labor. They've taken hold of the hearts of the religious elites in Jerusalem. So that we read in verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. The forces of Satan set out to find false witnesses to lie against God and to do so in the presence of God by testifying falsely to all sorts of accusations against the Christ. But they found none. Although many false witnesses came forward. The problem, of course, was not that there weren't enough witnesses. The problem was that all these false witnesses were liars and so their testimonies weren't agreeing with one another. But at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I will destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. But again, as Mark tells us, even these two testimonies did not perfectly agree with each other. But it's all sort of beside the point, isn't it? Because the Sanhedrin isn't seeking after the truth at all but only to lay a charge against the Lord and a thin charge at that. And all this begs the question, doesn't, how, how did we get here? How, how did humanity come to a place where, where they lie against God in the presence of God? Where they come under the oath and, and swear by his name, not in pursuit of the truth, but, but in pursuit of promoting the lie? This wasn't the way it was ever supposed to be. This isn't the way it was in, in the garden when, when Adam and Eve walked and talked and they communed with God and communicated with God in spirit and truth. Boys and girls, what happened? I'm sure most of us know the answer. Satan entered in. Satan, whom Jesus calls the father of all lies, slithered his way into the garden 
And as a direct assault against the God of heaven, he lying to Adam and Eve so that they believed his lies, so that they too turned their backs on the God who made them. And this is how even our communication came under the dominion of sin. This is how the great gift of God's communication was, was transformed from a helpful tool to a horrific weapon. As a former pastor of mine once said, when Satan lies, he is always speaking his native language. It's a language that was once foreign to us, the same way that perhaps the English language was once foreign to some of you before coming to Canada. But the language of Satan, the language of the lie, was a language that didn't take long to learn, was it? doesn't take long for our children to learn the language of the lie. But no sooner are they talking do they start lying. And so from a young age, we learn to listen, listen to each other with suspicion. We, we wonder if we can really believe the things people say, if we can really believe the things we hear on TV or what our politicians say. Increasingly, we wonder, can, can we trust what our, what our physicians say? We're not always sure. We don't always know what to believe because we live in a world of lies where people lie for their own personal advantage. And so we don't always know who we can trust or to what degree we can trust them. And all this falsehood pervades our world. It all has its origin, rebellion against God. That's where it all began. And so the whole of human history is a history of this struggle, this long-lasting struggle between the truth and the lie clashing together all the time. And it's all mounted to this night in Matthew 6, where we discover that the Lord Jesus Christ has entered into a world of lies. He has entered into a world of false witnesses in order that we might be saved in virtue of his truth-speaking. In his grace and mercy, Christ enters this world of false witnesses. He comes to, to benders of the truth. He, he comes to liars and shady business dealers. He comes to you and to me. And not only that, but he ultimately suffers dearly for it, doesn't he? Here in Matthew 26, the kangaroo court is in, is in session. The Sanhedrin has sought false testimony against him. And many have borne false witness against him. They're all guilty of perjury, of, of lying before God in the presence of God. The gracious gift of the oath has been weaponized by the forces of evil. And fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah, here our Lord Jesus stands silent in all this. He does not raise his voice to defend himself. He, he doesn't request a, a defense attorney to plead his cause. He does not defend his prophetic word. How, how the temple that was to be destroyed was a picture of his body and how though that body would be destroyed, it would surely be raised up on the third day. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
And so writes Claus Skilder, the chief prophet maintained the profoundest silence in the presence of the highest court that there ever was in the history of the world. In the midst of this raging war of Satan to bring about the damnation of the whole world, Christ holds his peace. He remains silent. Finally, the Lord is taken to the point where he can remain silent no longer. In verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The high priest requires Jesus to testify under oath. And even by requiring Christ to do this is a rejection of the Christ, because if Jesus is the Christ, then And he has no need to swear by God because he was God. But in the keeping of the third commandment, the Lord Jesus humbles himself. And the Son of God swears by God. He does not perjure himself. He does not lie under oath. But he testifies to the truth of God. And in so doing, our Lord swears to his own herd, as the psalmist said. This Jesus does so that he might graciously redeem those who had rejected his grace, so that by his truth we might be set free from the power of the lie. Do you feel the weight of Christ's humiliation for us? Here are the men of the Sanhedrin, like Moses, standing on holy ground in the presence of the Holy One, the great I Am. They should be bowing at his feet in reverence and awe. They should be singing with the psalmist, Now unto Jehovah, ye sons of the mighty, all glory and strength and dominion accord, ascribe to him glory and render him honor and beauty of holiness, worship the Lord. No. Here they are, not resolved to worship our Lord, but to crucify him, to put him to death. It is a most solemn hour. Never in the course of human history has there been a trial as significant as this one. Here on this trial, there is but one truth teller. There is but one who is just. And he swears to his own hurt. He makes the good confession. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so. Or as Mark records, Jesus replies, Ego eimi, I am, taking the divine name upon his lips. Yes, I am the Christ. He prophesies concerning the truth of God's word over against the lies of Satan. He goes on to say, But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And with these words, Christ evokes the prophecy of Daniel 7.13 and applies them to himself. That, that the prophecy that foretold of the unstoppable breaking into the kingdom of Christ was speaking of him. For although it would appear to the whole world that this fateful day belongs to Satan, the future belongs to Christ, the one who stands accused. And to him and to his chosen ones belongs that eternal Daniel 7 kingdom that cannot be shaken. As we sang from Psalm 15, Christ is he that slanders not his brother, who does no evil to a friend. Two approaches of another he refuses to attend. Wicked men win not his favor, but the good who fear the Lord. From his vow he will not waver though it bring him sad reward. Christ does not waver from his vow, though it bring him sad reward. He swears to his own hurt, you have said so. This Christ does for you. This oath binds him to you. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they all answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? By making the good confession, Christ has signed his own death warrant. This truth condemns him before sinful men. He is to be put to death for blasphemy. And according to the gracious wisdom of God, this Christ willingly endures for us. He endures all the lies, all the blasphemies, all the sins of adoration you are seeing. For Christ is the faithful witness. Does not waver from his oath. Behold your unwavering Savior this morning. With the eye of faith, you see him here standing before the Sanhedrin, swearing by God that he is God for you. Do you see him spit at and slapped and beaten, enduring the ridicule of sinful men for you? For Christ is no blasphemer, but you are. And if the sin of your blasphemy is to be covered before the sight of heaven, then Christ had to swear to his own hurt that we might be saved. And so, as our Catechism says, it was in order to promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and his neighbor's good that Christ reverently swore an oath in God's name. He is the faithful witness. Christ is he who 
walks uprightly, who does the right without a fear. When he speaks, he speaks not lightly, but with truth and love sincere. And so he came under oath, and so he spoke for us. But while the Lord Jesus is testifying to the truth of God's word, while Jesus is making the good confession, his dear disciple Simon Peter was denying his confession. The very disciple who not long before had confessed, you are the Christ, the the Son of, of the living God now denies ever having known him not once but three times. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance, under, and another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Peter invokes the name of God and under oath, he denies God. And this, too, is a solemn moment in redemptive history, a fulfilling of the prophecy that even those sheep who have been closest to the good shepherd would scatter. Not even Peter stays true to Jesus in his evening of suffering. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Gospel of Luke tells us, tells us that at that time our Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. In his sin and fear of man, Peter turned his back on the faithful witness. How could he do such a thing? But by including these words in his gospel account, and by the other gospel is doing the same thing, does not Matthew hold up Peter's failure as a mirror before our eyes? Is that the question is not just how could he do such a thing, but how could we do such a thing? None of us are innocent of the sin of Peter. We've all failed in our witness to Christ by our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We've all been Peter at one time or another. We recognize that in our profession of faith, our yes word before the congregation is an oath word before God. And there we promise before God to continue always steadfastly in our profession. And there we declare that we promise to always despise and humble ourselves before God because of our sins. We declare that we love that it is our heartfelt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world, to put to death our old nature, and to lead a godly life. And yet, how often haven't we fallen short of those vows? 
How often haven't we as husbands and wives fallen short of the vows we've made to each other? How often haven't we as parents fallen short of the vows we made when you brought our children forward to be baptized? How often haven't we as office bearers, as minister, elders, and deacons fallen short of the vows we've made before God to fulfill our offices faithfully and to walk in all godliness? In the midst of such great failure, we stand in need of great forgiveness, don't we? And that's what the faithful witness wins for us. Full forgiveness for for all our failures and falling short. And for this reason, Christ not only hurt, not only endures the mockery of the soldiers, But for this reason, he goes to Calvary and goes to the cross to accomplish our forgiveness so that we can read those words at the end of Mark's gospel to the trembling Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James. What does the angel say to them? says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen indeed. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Peter. And that's the gospel. Although Peter had denied Christ, Christ had not denied Peter. Although Peter had failed Christ, Christ has not failed Peter. And so the failed witness becomes the forgiven witness. When Jesus saw him after the rooster crowed, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And yet, says Eshi de Graf, Peter knew his master. He knew of a grace that would one day conquer everything. Therefore, he did not despair unto death like Judas had done. And so when our Lord found Peter, what did he do? He provided a threefold restoration for Peter's threefold denial. And this, people of God, is the grace of the faithful witness. The Lord of heaven comes to us in the third commandment and speaks to us with words of warning. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And yet here we are alive and well. Here we are readying our hearts to come to the table of our Lord in full assurance of faith. And yet God's word has not been broken. Boys and girls, how can that be? How can, how can God render us guiltless without guilt and yet keep his word in the third commandment that he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain? How can God do that? We can only do that in the Lord Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin, who knew no guilt to be sin, to be 
that in him we might become guiltless. In him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we sing this morning, and so we sing around his table, What shall I render to Jehovah now? For all his riches of his consolation, with joy I'll take the cup of his salvation and call upon his name with thankful vow. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks that you've given to us a righteous Savior, a gracious Savior, who comes and swears to his own hurt. We thank you for his condescending grace that he came to a world of lies and false witnesses, that he came to a world of blasphemers, of benders of the truth, that he came to us and that he swore to his own hurt that we might be saved, that he would, for our sakes, endure the penalty of our blasphemy. Father, we pray that you would indeed forgive us for all the times we failed in our witness. But we give you thanks that in the midst of so much failure, there is indeed forgiveness. And you not only forgive us, but you also refurbish us again to bear witness to Christ, to perform our vows before the Lord and one another as we come to the table, as we sing praises to your holy name. Father, we thank you that you give us the bread and the wine to assure us of these things. That Christ indeed did not come to die for the righteous, but to die for sinners, to die for blasphemers. And so assure us in this gospel, we pray this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen.